My name is Grant Gibson, I edit Crafts Magazine. Um, I'm going to speak to the author, curator, critic, author of Thinking Through Craft, amongst other things. Glad Anderson has been the uh, former director of MAD in New York, and he's here today to talk about his latest book, which I will hold up, called Art in the Making. So, feel free to welcome Glenn before we start. <clears throat> It also gives me time to sit down and find my notebook, you see, when they applaud, which is good. So, talk, talk to us about this book. I mean, it seems to me that it's about the production of art. Mm -hmm. And I guess the obvious question in the first place is, why choose that topic? Mm -hmm. uh, so first, let me just thank you for having me here and thank everybody for coming and Carl Hansen for hosting. Uh, and then the other person I want to thank is Julia Brian Wilson, who is my co-author. Uh, so this book uh, is totally collaborative despite the fact that my co-author and I were not living more than 3,000 miles, uh, or less than 3,000 miles apart at any time during the writing. So we did everything by kind of remote collaboration in a very 21st century way, it strikes me. <laughs> uh, and partly I raised that just to say that everything I'm going to say is the product of conversation between the two of us, so I want to give her full credit. And a lot of our book is about giving full credit, which maybe we'll get to. But also, it leads me back to your question, which is why write about art production mm. now? Um, and, you know, I don't want to overstate this, but I, I think that in 50 years, 100 years, people will look back at our moment in art history as being defined by production rather than, let's say, ideas, styles, movements. And partly that's because art today is so wildly diverse, so it's very difficult to get your hands around it in any other way um, than some objective consideration that is pervasively relevant to all art practice. But also it's because we're now going through a kind of explosion of productive techniques and also a radical increase in production value. So you would have to go to ancient China or pre-Columbian civilizations or possibly to the medieval and renaissance courts to find a period of art history that was so defined and determined by the cost of what it takes to make the work and the difficulty of what it takes to, ma to make the work. And you would have to um, think about major uh, monuments, sort of wonders of the world, to think about uh, an art historical moment that is so determined by scale issues, just to take one, one um, example. So clearly this seems to be absolutely critical to art in our time. But why? Why now, I wonder, is that because of digitization, mm. 3D printing, is, is, this, is this technology that's, that's yeah. producing this, this movement that you're talking about? I think it's several reasons that have converged. Uh, one is definitely technology, and that's not only the direct technology that allows you to make something enormous, uh, so digital rendering and fabrication mm. techniques, mm. it's also technologies of communication. So for example, someone like Urs Fischer can squeeze a little lump of clay in his hand then 3D scan it, which is one new technology, but then also send that scan to China and have it fabricated. And in fact, what he does is uh, to have it fabricated in foam in Switzerland and then have that foam uh, copy, which is a giant, giant version of that squeezed clay. He has that foam copy made in aluminum in China and then it's shipped back to the United States for display. And, and that's a great example of the kind of thing I'm talking about, massive scale monumentality empowered by technology. So that's one factor. Because there are a few themes running through this book. I mean, you have Marxist theory running through it from time mm -hmm. to time, yeah. the role of global capitalism, which you're, you're touching on now. Yeah. There is uh, gender politics get raised. But, but the biggest theme that runs through the entire book 
is this notion of um, distributed authorship, yeah. you call it. I mean, can we, can we define what distributed authorship might be mm -hmm. in the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, in a, in a way it's simple, which is that the artist is not the person making the work, at mm. least not solely, often not at all. Um, of course, it gets very complicated because there are lots of strategies of distributed authorship. Uh, and you could say that a lot of artists today work in the medium of other people's labor as a painter used to work in the medium of paint, mm. or Jennifer Lee here works in the medium of clay, or Fisher works in the medium of other people's labor. So that's distributed. And the reason we say distributed authorship is because we want to insist on giving credit to those other people. So from our perspective, it makes sense to think of that enterprise as shared authorship. And of course, as a sort of diminishing potentially, which is why it's so problematic for a lot of artists to even talk about production, a diminishing of sole autonomous authorship, or at least a complication or uh, you might say a, a kind of reinvention of what authorship means. Mm. And so that's a, a big concern of the book. Because, what, I mean, why is it that artists are so unwilling to share or credit in a mm. way that, I mean, you, ma you make the point that, that at the end of films you have lists of people, grips and yeah. et cetera, who, who have been involved. But if you look at a work of art, uh, and I was going through the Power of Making book, uh, mm -hmm. various artists work today to, to check. It's just the artist. Now, I wonder yeah. how that culture has developed and why. Even in Power of Making, which is a craft Even in Power of Making, which is which project, all yeah. about the making. Yeah, exactly. Um, again, probably a couple of reasons why don't we credit art the way we credit film. Um, one reason is certainly because of that authorship issue, but I think another reason is, frankly, um, the problem of money and, and uh, the way that a fabricator uh, could perhaps start to exert a kind of economic control over the artwork. And those two issues of economics and authorship are closely mm -hmm. linked. So one of our slogans of this book is follow the money. And if you don't understand, let's say, the upfront investment that a gallery is putting into an artwork, a single artwork, then you cannot understand anything about the way that it's produced. Because that relationship between the artist and the gallerist and possibly a potential buyer already is determining what is going to happen. Yeah. But I mean, I'm guessing, well, in fact, I mean, from the book, it seems to me that the art world doesn't give its secrets up right. very easily. I mean, the book is not full of images of fabricators in their studios making these pieces. No. And, and likewise... Not for lack of trying. Yeah, well, I was going to right. ask, I mean, how difficult was it to get information, to get images, oh. to get people to talk about these things? Oh, I can't even tell you. I mean, in that respect, it was easily the most difficult thing I've ever worked on. It's nice that we have that there, yeah. by the way, to remind us. <laughs> Uh, Making in the background. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's the architect's, architect Piers Goff's studio. And parenthetically, we could say that architecture is another great example of a, a field where credit is given to one person and the actual agency is distributed hugely, but we tend not to think about that. Well, but there, is, there are other industries. I mean, you look at the design world, sure. where this is actually a relatively new yeah. uh, phenomenon, where, where the, you have this genius designer. It used to be, yeah. that, that, in the UK, that design was made in studios with rather faceless people. And now, yeah. you, know, you, you go to Milan and you see them on billboards wearing white suits and, and being, being the star. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's of course also connected to questions of intellectual property. Mm. So authorship and intellectual property, that, you know, that's one way that we try to account for authorship in our culture. And insofar as the economy is shifting gradually from the dominant power being rooted in real manufacturing to the dominant power being rooted in intellectual property control. Think of the film industry, the music industry, the 
computer industry mm. that's all uh, intangible property, you could say, and art is following suit. So is, is the book setting out to change the way the art world operates? Did, is there a manifesto here, I wonder? Because yeah. you talk about this need for credit, but it seems to me at the conclusion you're not entirely certain that it's the way forward. Well, right, because just listing people, I yeah. mean, how empowering is it really to be listed at the end credits in Avatar? You know, absent a guild structure or a kind of, um, a kind of organized union, as you in fact have in Hollywood, mm. crediting doesn't actually produce any change. Um, so we are more, it's more like we're advocating a complete change in attitude to questions of production. Uh, first of all, that we, they should be considered as inseparable with and also as a, uh, equally important as conceptual issues. And we're also arguing that um, the reality of authorship and production be taken into account. So just to get back to your question mm. about how difficult it was to produce the book, um, it's the first time I've ever experienced um, artists refusing to allow us to use images, not only images of work happening in their studio, so we would say, do you have a fabricator shot? No, but also they would refuse to even allow us to reproduce their work because we were talking about production issues and really surprising people turned us down. Um, can, we, can we name them? Oh, like Ai, Wei, Ai Weiwei, for example. That's interesting. Which shocked me. Yeah. And it, it, I think that was because we were talking in a very explicit way about the politics of his piece being shut down at Tate Modern. He didn't tell us why. And this is an artist I've worked with before, mm. you know, on a V&A project, et cetera. And um, we just got to know. And I, I think that there's a lot of discomfort around the politics of these relationships. That's the point I'm trying to make. And what we're trying to do in the book is to get people to revise their attitudes towards that, both in terms of our criticism, but also in terms of the way that we understand the art world as a group enterprise mm. with interdependencies. Mm. I mean, that notion of talking about production, I mean, you, you make the point that conceptualization and, and putting value on a concept is actually relatively uh, recent yeah. development. And I'm wondering uh, how it developed and yeah. how unhealthy it's become for the art world. Yeah, in fact, the whole idea of the artist being the sole creator is a very small, uh, well, sort of narrow exception in art history. It really comes about with romanticism in the early 19th mm. century and it arguably dies with conceptualism and minimalism uh, when you start to have industrial processes and fabricators involved. So it's less than 200 years mm. and only in Europe and America really that that's the dominant mode. Obviously before that, someone like Rubens would have had many people painting his works and everybody would have understood that and it would have been obvious to them, you know, something that scale is not gonna be painted by one person and that was not a problem. Sculpture is even uh, more pervasive, so even Rodin, at the beginning of the 20th century is working with very large teams of people. Mm. So this idea of the artist's touch being the guarantor of value, which ironically is massively important to people in the crafts. You know, people in the crafts get extremely agitated if they find out that, let's say, Del Chihuly didn't make his own glass. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people complain about that. But the artist making their own work is, is a vanishingly small exception as a percentage of art history. So we have this weird hang up about it that does come from the romantic cult of the individual, for sure. And it probably, in a more complex way, has to do with our general anxiety about individuality under the conditions of modernity mm. and our worry about the dissipation of individual will uh, given the forces of corporate um, machine-powered uh, economy. And that's a long story, but it's definitely in the background, which is why Marx is Well, I was going to say, because you, you, you read this through, through a prism of, of yeah. Marx quite, quite, yeah. quite often, right? And I, I yeah. wonder whether Marx... 
I mean, after what four decades of neoliberalism, Marx is still relevant yeah. to anybody other outside academia. I wonder. Yeah. Well, right. I, there's there's two ways of thinking about Marx, though the descriptive way mm. and the prescriptive way, and we're thinking of him descriptively. So, in other words, Marx helps you understand how things work even if you don't think that communist revolution is just around the corner or you should go and smash a McDonald's. So what we're trying to do is say the means of production is essential to the way that we understand contemporary art. Mm. And a lot of the rest of it is actually a kind of tap dance that's distracting you from what's really going on, not even under the surface, right under your nose. I mean, in a flagrant way, think about Jeff Koons, right? He's pushing it in your face and saying, um, do not look at this thing, this shiny, amazing thing. Do not look at its reality because I'm telling you some other story and I'm gonna insist on that other story. And if you start talking about my fabricators, I'm gonna shut you down. And that maneuver is extremely explicit in Kunz's case, but that basically is the maneuver of contemporary art in most situations. Mm. So what we're doing is looking at, um, looking at that normative condition and then some exceptions that we think are worth upholding. I, would, I should also say, by the way, and you're probably gonna ask me about it, but <laughs> Marxism is one of the intellectual frameworks and the other one is feminism. Yes. Because it's feminism yes, that gives the, you Yes, the, there, was, there was a lot of feminism running through the book. Yeah. And I'm quite intrigued because one of the things I was gonna open with, but I didn't for various reasons, is this notion of, I'm always intrigued, well, I'm intrigued by partnerships anyway, yeah. but you, one talks about the, the touch of, a, of a, the artist, but one thinks of um, writing as a particularly solitary activity. Yeah. So I'm intrigued by the fact you've got two people writing a book mm. and how that works, what mm. you each bring to the, to the page. Yeah. We did try to surface that a bit because we were trying to be, I don't know, honest about our own production, even though we're writers, not mm. artists. So we talk about that a little bit in the conclusion. I mean, what we actually did was we traded um, or we separated out the chapters and I drafted half of them, she drafted half of them, and then we wrote over each other so that it became this kind of palimpsest of voice mm. so that I think it's now quite difficult to tell that the chapters originated with one or the other of us. Um, I mean, it would be interesting to sort of talk to somebody who knew us both really well and see if they could figure that out. But what we wanted to do was have every sentence be equally authored or as close as we could get to that. Right. So we had a pretty no holds barred attitude to each other's texts. <laughs> so we edited each, other, edited each other in a kind of extremely uh, interventionist way and then we set, tried to accept what the other person was doing. So it was, it was great. I mean, I, I would say it's the book I'm proudest of that I've right. worked on, partly because it's, I think it's hard to be totally proud of something you did yourself because you often have doubt and also you feel a little bit, I don't know, egotistical saying how proud you are of it. But the fact that Julia is kind of on board with every word in the book gives me a sense of confidence. And also she's a very different person. Yeah. I mean, she's a lesbian art historian who draws very deeply from queer studies and subcultural studies. And she's coming at craft from a really kind of performance art and conceptual art point of view and I'm a craft historian and theorist coming at art from that perspective, so we're sort of crossing in the middle, and this kind of is the intersection point. So, I mean, is it as crude as saying you brought the Marxism and she brings the feminism? How, how does that, how does no, that work? No, yeah, I wouldn't say that. I mean, because we're both very doused in mm. those um, theoretical constructs, uh, but we probably think about them differently, like to expand on the feminism thing a little bit. For Julia, that's like a lived thing, you know? she's. Mm. She is queer, she writes about people that she knows 
directly and has a very strong sense of political um, sympathy and alliance with those artists often. Uh, for me, feminism is probably a little bit more of a um, methodological issue. So for me, it's about questions of asymmetry and power. And I've often reflected on the fact that craft is generally speaking, historically, a word that people throw at things made by non-white people and women. And I think it, it's really useful to reverse the polarity. And instead of saying, why do women make craft instead of art, the question should be, why do we call the things that women make craft? And not assume that that's a natural mm. category, but instead assume that it's a constructed category that's already ideological, that already has power uh, dimensions built into it. And the same thing with black people, Asians, you know, uh, Latin Americans, uh, who again are often thought of as, um, as fundamentally based in craft. Um, in fact, I heard something great earlier today from this uh, ceramic artist called Nao Matsunaga, um, who's Japanese but working here. Um, is now here, by the way. No, I thought he might come, but um, but he he was just telling me about this um, the word mumbo jumbo, and the fact that um, other languages, which of course is also to say the whole ideational structure, religious structure of other cultures, in the 19th century were regularly called mumbo jumbo or other similar words like nonsense. Mm and that the great tragedy of modernity in some ways is that those languages and everything that went with them were conceived as nonsense instead of conceived as something that could be learned from. And I think there's something very similar that happened in craft history where things that were outside the domain of academic, um, individualistic, Eurocentric art were just relegated to the domain of craft instead of being assumed to be equally valid and we're all still living the consequences. But for all that, the book is, is I mean, you say in your, in your opening, it's largely concerned with UK and American yeah. art, isn't it? Well, we tried hard. Um, I mean, it's, of course, it's a lot easier to write about things where you share a language and also where you can get to the person or people that were involved directly. Uh, and so there's an issue of adjacency there. But we did struggle hard to... Um, find examples that were you know, globally dispersed. And I think we were fairly successful at that. You know, the point we're making in the introduction is we would have liked that to be even more mm. evenly spread, but because we ourselves are trained in this Eurocentric uh, discipline, we bear the marks of that. So that was, again, something we were, where we were trying to be transparent about our own perspective. My favorite phrase in the book, which I, I hadn't come across before, but maybe you coined it, I don't know, maybe you, you found it, sado-Marxism. Yeah, that's Julia. Can we, can, yeah. we, can we talk us through yeah. what sado-Marxism might be? Yeah, um, I remember that phrase because when I saw it, <laughs> this is Julia's line, I loved it so much as well. Um, the actual full phrase is um, Santiago Sierra and his trademark sado-Marxism, <laughs> which is so great. Um, so if you don't know Santiago Sierra's work, he's probably the most extreme figure in the book with respect to art that constructs labor politics. Mm. So he will do, um, his works involve um, pressing people into service in a way that is fundamentally horrifying. So for example, he's hired prostitutes to uh, subject themselves to having a line tattooed across their back. You have a series of, um, you know, a, a line of women with this line tattooed permanently on their backs, and he pays them, I think, the same amount that they would be paid to turn a trick, right? So that's, a, you know, and there's a lot to say just in that 
uh, work, but there are many examples. He's done works where um, he pays two people to endlessly paint a room white, swiveling around like this. So they're always painting the room white and it's always white and they're just going and going and going. He um, did a, uh, he did a kind of performance piece where he hired some illegal um, immigrant laborers, I think in Germany, to move an extremely heavy block of concrete from one side of a room to the other. So he, they're moving this thing that looks like a minimalist sculpture, like a Donald Judd, and they're just sweating and struggling and doing this all day, and you just kind of are presented with this spectacle. So trademark sadomarxism. Mm. And, I mean, in know, terms of the production, does he reveal what he gets paid for these kind of That's a great question. I wonder. I actually don't know, which suggests that maybe he doesn't. Yeah. Because I did research him quite a bit, and I never saw that mentioned. Um, I mean, how many artists reveal what they get paid in public? Well, point, you get, you get into because the figures you, know. you do get because there's that chapter you, you devote a chapter to cashing yeah, in, cashing right? in, uh, and obviously when you talk about cashing in, almost inevitably the first thing you think about is Damien Hirst yeah. Diamond Skull, which you talk yeah. about, and you do have figures yeah, for yeah. that approximately because it was leaked, which is quite intriguing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so let's rehearse that for a minute because it's a great example. Yeah. So the Diamond Skull, which is called For the Love of God, which is obviously a self-referential title that's meant to be funny but also off-putting. Um, in a sort of Warholian tradition. That work was sold by White Cube Gallery for 50 million pounds. pounds. Uh, and of that, I was able to find out through press reports, which I hope are accurate, that 22 million pounds of the work was the labor and the materials. And I was also able to find out that Bentley and Skinner, the Bond Street jeweler, had mm. done the labor. Um, they are under a confidentiality agreement, so I was not able to find anything more than that. And again, that's quite common among fabricators. They won't talk to you. And I should have said earlier, by the way, that the only people more difficult to get information from and publishable in images from than the artists were the fabricators, because they don't want to go there at all, um, because they're bound by these confidentiality mm. agreements. Anyway, Hearst's work then has this weird $28 million gap to be explained, or pound, sorry, 28 million pound gap. It costs 22 million pounds of real objective value to make, and then it was sold for 50 million pounds. And then even more interestingly, among the buyers for the work were Damien Hurst and White Cube Gallery. So, so they bought their own work? In part. In part. So what we say in the book is that this is this kind of either brilliant or disturbing idea that an artwork is basically being floated on the market. It's like an IPO on the stock market. So they're putting it out there as a pool of value in which they are the, I think, the majority shareholders. So they retain a controlling interest over the work mm. and they bring other money into the work and therefore Hearst practice in the gallery. And if you don't understand that, again, I don't think you understand the most interesting thing about the work. I mean, all the stuff about, oh, it looks like a pre-Columbian turquoise skull and it's a self-portrait and a vanitas is like bullshit. It's about the ch a radical change in the way that art operates in the economy. That's what that piece is yes. about. And it's interesting, and it addresses that very specifically. I'm not saying it's a bad artwork any more than Andy Warhol's soup cans were bad artworks. They were addressing reality and also transforming that reality so we could see it differently. Um, but if you don't even understand that that's going on, how can you possibly come to grips with the work critically? But presumably also it gives the artist some kind of uh, financial kickback when it gets sold again, because you, you then go on to make the point about how artists you know, right. generally lose out. Yeah, but no more than Coca-Cola gets a kickback when their stock market price rises, mm. right? And it's, I think it's 
a marker of our attitude to art and our sort of dysfunctional attitude to art that we object when art has this kind of value fluctuation or we look at what happens in the auction houses and say, oh, that Picasso is selling for 170 million, uh, sorry, $170 million, uh, even though it's sort of B plus Picasso at best and this is upsetting for people or Robert Rauschenberg uh, punching one of his collectors in the face in the early 70s when this is his collector Robert Skull. Skull had sold a Rauschenberg that he had bought maybe six years earlier for a profit. Mm. And Rauschenberg went up to Skull and said, you bastard, I've been working my ass off for you to make that uh, profit and tried to punch him in the auction room. <laughs> and this, uh, to me, this bespeaks um, an attitude that is contradictory that we have towards art, that on the one hand, it is a commodity, and on the other hand, it is the pure expression of somebody's creativity. And you often will hear people say, this artwork is priceless, which we shouldn't say because we should know that nothing is priceless, not in mm. capitalism. And it's also just parenthetically fascinating to look at the role of the museums in maintaining this whole system, because in a sense, a museum collection object is priceless just because it's not for sale. And so they function as this very interesting kind of escape valve from supply and demand and from the economy, from market exchange, in a way that, of course, also shores up that economy. So yeah. it's, again, an interdependency. Um, so that's a whole other kind of register of things that are going on that, of course, I'm implicated in since I work in museums. Mm. Mm. I mean, just going back to the kind of the structure of the book and the, mm. the way you decided to go chapter by chapter and... Um, yeah. Well, not material by material, but I guess technique by technique. Yeah. It seems to me that there are um, some areas that are easier to see the distributed authorship than others. Yeah. Um, so I'd be intrigued, maybe we can talk about how some of the performance pieces, there's a chapter that you devote to performance art, mm. and how that fits a distributed authorship model. Yeah. So maybe I should first say that the idea of the structure of the book is uh, there are nine chapters and each of them is about a specific process. So a means by which you can make art a means of production. And the first one is painting. The last one is crowdsourcing. And the middle one is performance. And in between you have things like woodworking and building sort of in the first half of the book. And you have things like cashing in and digital in the latter half of the book. And the idea is that you start with something obvious and extremely concrete sounding, painting. In fact, it's sort of the you could say the definition of traditional art yep. making. And then you end with something that sounds really new <laughs> and digital sounding crowdsourcing, which people are probably more familiar with from things like Kickstarter than from art. And then what we did was to write a chapter about painting that really emphasizes distributed authorship and immateriality and rethinking of the medium. And then crowdsourcing conversely is written in a way that emphasizes the physical base of people who engage in that kind of practice. So for example, we talk a lot about, a lot about craft sourcing, where artists will instigate these sort of mass crafting mm -hmm. events. And we talk about the fact that critically speaking, often crowdsourcing projects that are more physically embedded and skill-based are actually more effective, which seems kind of ironic. So what we're trying to do is sort of invert people's expectations even in the structure. And then in the middle, you have this chapter on performance, which uh, is there because we wanted to emphasize the um, physical and social underpinnings of art practice so that even the most individualistic, naked, often literally naked, um, sort of practice, the performance artist's practice, has these very rich dependencies. So it's about family members or other helpers who might be helping somebody 
who's doing this long endurance piece, you know, do their laundry or get fed, that kind of thing. So what we're trying to do is show that even uh, the most stripped down forms of art practice are already networked. Mm. Mm. I mean, ultimately, are you asking that audiences judge art differently, I wonder, through this book? Is that the point? I mean, you talk about at one point uh, looking through the conceptual merits to the, and at the production material of these things. Yeah. I guess so, yeah. I mean, it's, I would hope that what we're saying is additive rather than confrontational with other kinds of art criticism and art history. You know, I don't, I don't have a problem with people who are thinking about, let's say, minimalism in terms of discourses about space and the human scale, mm. for example. That, to me, seems completely legitimate as a description of the artist's concerns and the effect of the work. What we're saying is that to also um, to, to not look at minimalism in a way that takes into account production issues, so what was Donald Judd doing with those fabricators, as opposed to, let's say, Anne Truitt and what she was doing with her in her studio without yeah. fabricators, um, and then pretend that they're the same, um, thereby occluding not only the realities of the object, but also the gender realities of 1960s art practice. That is highly misleading, and it also closes down a lot of critical pathways. So what we're trying to do is encourage people to think in a more expansive way about production and to be open-minded to that, but also not to make the mistake of thinking that um, their account is satisfactory, because often a production-based account will um, at least complicate, if not contradict, uh, an account that's purely conceptual or mm. content-based. Mm. Mm. We've been talking about half an hour. Um, I'm very keen to get you guys involved before it goes completely black. Are there any lights we could turn on, by the way? No, it's getting silhouetted, Grant. Yeah, yeah. it's my yeah. best look. Guy, are those, are those light switches? So what I thought, yes, there we go. Um, <laughs> what I thought I would do is come in amongst you uh, with a microphone. Uh, if you have any questions. I'm Carol McNichol. I make pots. Um, I was kind of interested in this idea that somehow it seemed to me that in the Renaissance, when artists had big studios, nobody admitted that those big studios happened. I mean, everybody knew they happened, but mm. it was still the great artists' work. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me that that's a tradition that we've retained. Mm. And it's not something new. That it's, it's something that we've just carried on in exactly the same way. What people want, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm being deeply cynical here, but, but what people want is the work of a great artist. They don't actually want to know that the great artist used God knows how many different craftsmen to yeah. make the great art. Yeah. What people want is the great art, and they want a great artist. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Ai Weiwei gets all his stuff done is neither here nor there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so you know. uh, that's a fair point, I, and I'm not a Renaissance art historian. Um, what I would say is that the normal view of a Renaissance altarpiece, let's say, is that it is a large-scale commodity to be bought according to highly specific factors like how much gold, how much ultramarine pigment, how big is it, um, how many saints figures. And the fact that it's by Pontormo is like he's the guy around the corner. The, dif the difference, either, well, the, the difference is that in the Renaissance you have Vasari, who writes the first book of art history essentially, 
Um, and that is all based on this idea of individual genius. He sort of invents it within yeah. the Eurocentric tradition and it all builds up to Michelangelo and it is very much as you're saying, but I think it takes a long time for that ideology, if I can use that word, to become the norm. But and it's we have really been living with it for quite some time. Oh yeah, 200 years, 250 years. <laughs> well, it's longer than that, really. Well, in England, it comes along with Joshua Reynolds and the creation of the Academy, but it doesn't exist before that, really. Um, not in, again, not in a normative way. People who buy paintings are mostly talking to portraitists, and they're buying them again based on um, size, and number of figures, and it's very much like buying a dress or getting a building made. So this idea of the name of the artist and the touch of the artist, that really doesn't become the determinant factor until sometime in the 18th or 19th century, yeah. depending on where you are. But it starts with Vasari, you're right. But it, well, yeah. it does start there. Yeah, And it, and it that's is the seed. something that it'd be quite difficult to get away from. I mean, I... Mm. We're trying, though. <laughs> <laughs> Tanya, you were, Tanya, you were twitching like you had a question. Uh, no, no. Is that just a natural... Just, just thinking about Renaissance contrast. Okay, okay. We've, we've had our first question. We've kind of broken the seal. Yeah. Anybody more? More questions? Hands up. Yeah, somebody over there. I'm coming to you right now. Slightly awkward space. I'm Catherine Pogson. I'm a designer maker. Um, just picking up on the Marxist thing. Um, been reading Paul Mason's Post Capitalism recently, and he's, I don't know if you know it, but he's sort of positing an idea that the, the third revolution is all about because of technology things becoming free and this mm. kind of distribution um, breaking down capitalism where you can't own and contain knowledge and I'm wondering if there is something of that in the movement mm. or the awareness that you're trying to raise there and how that how those two things might speak to each other. Sorry who's uh, the writer that you mentioned? Uh, Paul, Paul Mason. Mason. Oh, Paul Mason a, yeah, he, yeah. I don't know if you know it's the idea that what happens after Marxism and what happens mm. after um, um, you can't control and monetize um, technology. Yeah. It's yeah. now free and distributed. He's a yeah. fellow cross contributor, incidentally. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Never a branding opportunity. No, missed. no, no. Absolutely not. <laughs> so, you can subscribe upstairs afterwards, everyone. <laughs> so I'm afraid I haven't read him, although it sounds like I should, but um, no, my thought about that. Um, this gets back to the intellectual property thing, and you might compare the situation in art or contrast the situation in art to what's happened in music. And of course, music has a crisis, which is that its material base is extremely weak, and therefore, essentially, the only way to continue making money from music, except in the context of a live concert, which has a material base, is um, to try to persuade people to abide by intellectual property restrictions that are obviously unnecessary. And so the, the tendency is for the audience to want its music cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and for the artist to fight that, the musical artists. Now in contemporary art, you do have a similar trend, but the response has been to scale up and to raise production values. So you could say that the two industries are quite comparable, really. They're both these kind of mixed economies of entertainment and intellectual value and cultural value. The difference is that artists, fortunately for them, are still selling an object, whereas a musician is not. And again, unless they're actually creating a con live concert. Apart from that, that so. chapter, you devoted to digital. Yeah, yeah. To pixels. So yeah. how does it work in that environment? Yeah, I mean, that's a funny chapter for us because um, 
that's maybe a little less devoted to economic issues. And what we're really thinking about there is questions about script in relationship to physical outcome. So we thought it would be cool to start our chapter on the digital with Saul LeWitt, who's writing these very simple scripts, and then you get a wall drawing, right? And that's actually not that different from somebody like mm. Corey Archangel, who's creating a digital code that then produces an artwork on the other end. Um, but to kind of draw that together, I would say that even in the case of digital art, you have this tension between stuff that get, gets given away for free, that's just like online uh, text, versus a digital outcome that is then still has a very emphatic physical form. So for example, Corey Archangel um, makes these extraordinary huge digital prints that are very expensive to make on a specialized printer, mm. precisely so that he can still perform in the commodity sphere of the art world. Mm. More questions? Ah, coming towards you. If you can just let us know who you are. Sorry to repeat that, but it's this whole podcast business. I'm Sarah Elson, um, founder of Launchpad, an art commissioning series. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Sarah. Um, I just wondered if you'd encountered any attitudes among the fabricators you uh, spoke to who were actually happy to be the behind-the-scenes people. And I'm reminded of um, 20 Feet from Stardom that sort of documented mm. you know, the um, history of, back, of um, backup singers mm. who actually were quite happy to be in the background and support the um, sort of production of something bigger than they were. There's sort of a pride in the, yeah. in the fabricating of it. So that's one question. And then, um, is it your intention to equalize the um, value placed on the um, skills of the fabricators and the artist? Um, mm. And yeah, if so, you know, how do you how do you see that happening? Because some somehow I almost think that the skills of the fabricator will be. Um, recompensed like more predictably mm. whereas an artist is subject to the vagaries of the art market yeah um, and is in a much more precarious position than mm. someone who has skills executes them and yeah. gets paid yeah that's those are both great points and um, another way of casting this conversation is in terms of risk management so again it makes sense to think about artists in a uh, kind of larger productive context. So an artist that has a reliable sales, um, pre reliable predictable uh, sales climate can be much more uh, risky in their production because they are pretty much sure that they're gonna be able to place that and the gallery of course performs a key role there. But you're right that an artist is in a, certainly a different risk management um, situation than a fabricator is, although, they do say that Jeff Koons managed to bankrupt the major fabricator in California, Carlson. And that may or may not be true. It depends who you ask. But Jeff Koons is doing fine and Carlson's gone. So that's obviously not always the case. Um, to get to your first question, which is really interesting, um, you know, this book kind of made me want to write a book entirely about fabricators. And partly it was because I was struck by that disparity uh, between um, the importance of what they did and the pride that you talk about, which is absolutely there in the sort of ranks of fabricators, and then the desire not to be on stage. So they reminded me a little bit of like dressers or set technicians or lighting people in theater. 
that are happy to let the actor and the director go out there. And they have, again, this kind of guild mentality, I might, I might describe it that way. Um, so we're not trying to say that that's wrong or that necessarily the fabricator should be given equal billing or anything like that. What we're trying to say is this is going on and you can't take account of the artwork unless you realize that it's going on. And as long as there's transparency and the fabricator is acknowledged and their role is acknowledged and described adequately and maybe the financial implications of that are at least uh, available for those who are interested, um, I think that would be a much better situation. Um, I also think, last thing I'll say about that, that it should be at least theoretically possible for a fabricator to become more interesting in retrospect than the artist. Um, and the, the comparison I would make there is um, Edith Head, the costume designer. So, you know, she was the greatest costume designer of mid-century Hollywood. And a lot of films now, you look back at them and they're terrible films, but they're really interesting because Edith Head did the costumes. And I think that that is absolutely the case with a lot of art. It's fascinating because Talix made it, who also made, you know, the Jeff Koons bunny, or it's fascinating because Lippincott made it, um, who was uh, the first large fabricator in America and did a lot of the early minimalist and public art sculpture. And I would argue that, let's say, a 1970 public artwork by Clement Meadmore Clement Meadmore, household name, right? It's a lot more interesting because it's an example of Lippincott's fabrication in plate steel than it is because of Clement Mead Meadmore's sort of second generation minimalist language. So Mike Smith will end up being more famous than the YBAs. Is this the, uh, the contention? Some of them, absolutely. More famous than some of the YBAs he worked for. Mike Smith is, of course, the paradigm case because he made the mistake. It's like Icarus flying close to the sun. His head above the parapet. Yeah, he made, he made the mistake of publishing a book about his fabrication firm. And Mike Smith went to Goldsmiths with all the other YBAs. And then he decided not to be an artist, but instead to be a fabricator for most of those people. And his firm grew and grew. And then he published a book about what they did and was severely punished for it and lost a lot of business and was highly criticized. Again, all behind the scenes. But now it's on a podcast. Um, we, have, we have time for more questions. Two more questions, maybe, if anybody is desperate to get something off there. Hello, coming over to you. Hello, I'm Teleri, um, and I work at Central oh. St. Martins. Um, hello. Okay. And I was just wondering about um, arts education. Do you look at the cost of a formal arts education and the impact that then has on placing artists within a system that they need to recoup quite considerable mm. um, financial investment they've already put in? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for that question, Tulare. And Tulare, again, not to miss the branding opportunity, used to work at Crafts Magazine and wrote a lot of fantastic <laughs> stuff in the pages over the years. But, you can um, subscribe upstairs afterwards. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that is, of course, crucial. And, you know, you can't talk about the economics of the art world without addressing the kind of scandal and uh, difficulty of the art education situation now. And that has very specific results like ceramics courses closing down and relational aesthetics courses opening up because relational aesthetics courses don't need to be funded um, with equipment, whereas ceramics courses are very expensive to run. And I, I mean, when I see a book like Nicola Buriod's Relational Aesthetics come out without addressing the fact that relational aesthetics are really cheap to train people in, relatively speaking, and cheap to produce, I think I smell a rat. Like, it's so obvious to me that that's a driver, and if it's not acknowledged at all, then I find that very problematic. And of course, it does start in the educational system. So some of it is very specific, what happens for a specific medium, let's say, and then some of it is more 
generic and universal, which is to say, how do we understand the art world as basically a precariat? So, you know, economy inhabited by people who have very marginal economic conditions um, and often impossible unless they're getting funding from some outside source like a family member, let's say. Um, a huge precariat with a few people on top who are actually profiting and are we happy with that system? And there is, in fact, a much larger discourse about that now opening up. But again, I don't think we should produce art criticism or art history without taking that kind of thing into account. Time for one more question. Nobody, it's been very quiet over here since Carol. Ah, okay, coming over to you. Hi, thank you. That was really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm interested in the, um, the performative and the public. Um, the Ai Weiwei um, uh, uh, sunflower seeds, I, I thought was um, spectacularly cynical. Mm. Um, but I'm quite interested in, for example, what your view is on, for example, Anthony Gormley's Fourth Prince project, mm -hmm. or indeed, and I can't for the life of me remember the name of the artist, but I'm sure you know who I'm talking about, is the artist who brings many people together and photographs them naked. As he Vanessa has just uh, thank you, yeah. um, just uh, just as he has done recently at Hull City of Culture, where presumably people were not paid to do that, but were part of it and therefore yeah. part of the production, and presumably went away having a really good feeling about the experience they had. Mm. Where where does that sit in this? Yeah. By the way, that was Rosie Greenlee's uh, speaking. I didn't feel inclined to tell you off, but it's fine. <laughs> for, for, the, for the record. Uh, so this kind of gets back to the Santiago Sierra example too, where you have people who are complicit as performers. And I guess the question again would be about the nature of that complicity and the structure in which it operates. So Beecroft and Sierra, Ai Weiwei, Anthony Gormley, they're all working with um, what you might call a constituency within the work in different ways. And I think you should be able to subject that to critical analysis. So do you think that Santiago Serra's sadomarxism is actually an effective form of critique? Do you think that- Do, do you think it is out of interest? Because you don't posit a, an opinion in the book. Yeah, I guess, um, hmm. I think it's, it's intensely disturbing uh, in a way that in-text is something real that's intensely disturbing. So I think it is a, a symptom of the dynamic that it seeks to critique. And in that way, I find it limited. I think that a really successful critical artwork is both a symptom and a proposition about the problem that it seeks to critique. Um, so for example, the Heidelberg Project in Detroit which is you know, a derelict row of houses that is um, then painted by the community mm. in this kind of joyful way. It's a very cele celebrated uh, example of public art, so another example of what you're talking about, Rosie. And yes, it only can happen because the houses are abandoned, so it's a symptom in that respect, but it's also community building, and it seems to offer some kind of um, generative model for what art could do to address the problem. And I don't think Santiago Sierra does that. So I think it's extremely powerful, but I would see it as limited in that sense. And so maybe the last thing to say um, before we'll have a drink is, you know, whether somebody, if an artist is working in the medium of other people's labor, which is very, very often the case today with successful artists, that has a set of moral as well as aesthetic implications. 
And I feel like we as viewers, much less art critics, should feel entitled to hold those conditions up to some kind of scrutiny and judgment. Um, and some artists do it better or worse, more self-aware, less self-aware. It's not saying that working with other people's hands is wrong. It's saying that that is going to be as complicated an affair as working in paint was in the Renaissance. And we need to marshal our skills and acuity to understand that and be able to diagnose it, because otherwise we're missing the main story and art of our times. That's, that's, the, that's the point. That seems like a nice place to leave it and drink beer, I think. Yes. Um, guys, thank you all very much for coming. Um, do say thank you, thank you to Glenn.